Welcome to Southeast Asia's Growth Leaders with True, a podcast dedicated to the region's high growth and early stage scene, where we ask industry leaders and experts for their insights, advice, and experiences on how to build and scale sustainable businesses in the region. My name is Sam Randall, and I'm a partner at True Search. True is the world's leading executive search platform for technology and tech-enabled companies. Since our inception, we have partnered with tech startups throughout their growth from pre-seed to post-IPO. With over 300 search professionals in 14 offices across North America, Europe, Middle East, and Asia, we have a modern and innovative approach, working with the founder and investor community to advise and assist in successfully scaling their businesses. With a decade of Southeast Asia search experience in technology, I lead the high growth and early stage practice for True in the region. I help startups through high growth stages with advice on talent and hiring, as well as providing search for co-founders, leaders, and technical experts. This week, we are very excited to welcome Satya Kalyanasundaram to the show. Satya is the India Country Head and Managing Director for Experian, the world's leading global information services company. Satya brings with him over 20 years of experience from consulting, finance, and fintech leadership. In his current role with Experian, he is responsible for driving overall growth for the business operations in India. He joins us for a deep dive into the current themes surrounding fintech in India, from the regulators to the banks and through to early stage disruptors, as well as his views on the key aspects for growth leadership. Okay, so Satya, thank you very much for coming on the show. Um, how have you been keeping in, in, in sort of the COVID universe? Um, how, how are things with you in, in India? Sam, thank you for having me. It's always a pleasure to chat with you. And um, uh, India has been on an interesting trajectory uh, on the COVID scene. We started uh, testing a little later than most countries. So I think the number of positive cases initially were a lot lesser but we've really increased the testing across the country over the last month or two. So obviously that's resulted in a lot of uh, cases. Uh, yeah. what, we, what is encouraging is that over 65% of the folks are recovering. Uh, actually, the, okay. the number is much higher. Uh, as the results come in, those numbers are going higher. But clearly the need to maintain social distancing and the uh, need to maintain hygienic practices is, is a given. So yeah, I do hope yeah. that there is a, a larger sense of all of that that prevails. Uh, it's improving in my mind across people's uh, practices. But I think yeah. if, if we continue that, uh, we may have a uh, more uh, successful bet against COVID. Uh, having said that, for about a month, we've had uh, uh, employers open up their offices and governments allow them with 10% of the workforce to come in. So okay, this could okay. be uh, this could be a little better going forward, assuming that everybody continues to follow the right practices. Okay. And has it been all work, work, work for you? Or have you had time during lockdown to, to perhaps learn a new language or sort of, you know, focus on a hobby or, or, or anything like that? Well, one, it, it has been a lot of work. Uh, for sure, because one of the first things that we did across Experian, uh, and I'm quite proud of it, is that we wanted to make sure all our employees were uh, safe, and we were one of the first companies to announce a lockdown. There's a lot of work that went into that, and obviously with the business slowing down, we had to reach out to clients. Clients were reaching out to us on how to work through the, the, the situation, and yeah. uh, so we've been able to uh, kind of normalize that 
um, we do see some signs of uh, business picking up slowly starting June. Right. But on the personal yeah. side, it's uh, uh, obviously a lot more time at home. So I had a chance to catch up on a lot of reading and uh, a fair bit of, uh, a, a fair bit of, you know, tried my hand at cooking. I've tried my hand at a couple <laughs> of other things, but uh, I would say really more time to read. And uh, the exercise routine is obviously a little bit more structured now. So I have yeah. uh, more time to work out and which I take advantage of. It's, it's funny. I think that um, the yeast, yeast and flour manufacturers have had a real bumper kind of a few months with everybody getting into baking and, and things, things like that. And um, what have you been? What have you been reading? Have you been reading anything interesting? I, I was saying I've I ended up reading. I usually end up reading two, three uh, books at the same time, and it's a combination of ones. I usually don't read fiction, um, so I read this uh, very interesting book called Atomic Habits, where you actually have a lot more success by following a set of habits. Uh, and the habits create practices, which in turn create success. Uh, I've also... How, how, does, uh, say, just how, how, does that, how does that work? So is it, does it sort of define the specifically the habits that you should be following to be more successful? Or is it more sort of in recognizing your behaviors and changing your habits to be sort of more attuned to what makes you successful? It, it's a it's a results focused system. So if you want to be fit, for, uh, for example, or you want to do a certain thing around fitness, you create habits that um, entice you to come back again the next day. So the habit has to have, this person says that the habit has to have a reward system based on that so that uh -huh. you have a, a reward every time you do the habit. And as you get through a certain period of time, then it gets ingrained in your system. So you don't really need the reward system. What you need is yeah. really a reward system to get to the next level. Um, yeah. The other thing that also works in, in all these is that the habit really does not specify the goal where you say, okay, listen, I want to be, uh, I want to put on 10 pounds of muscle. What you want to do is a habit that takes you past the next two days or three days, and then you keep extending it. So it's not a goal that you go set out two years from now. If you say that you want to go run a marathon, 42 miles, uh, yeah. 42 kilometers, there's a good chance that you're not going to be able to do it on day one. Rather, you keep setting these smaller goals that then you keep extending over a period of time. Uh, yeah. And it changes. It's more a mindset uh, one as opposed to a habits one. And I thought that was very interesting. You create uh, okay. these habits. Almost yeah. all the people who write such books write one thing which is consistent is that you write down what you want to do and where you want to be and who do you who you want to be and i think that uh, that it starts with the fundamental belief that we can change ourselves or we can improve ourselves and starting with documenting it makes it that much more powerful uh, across the board uh, so i thought that book was very very interesting um I read a book about, um, I read a fair bit of, of philosophy and stoicism, uh, Seneca, um, Marcus Aurelius, um, and philosophy around uh, a couple of similar Roman uh, authors. Yeah. I, I like to read uh, this author called uh, Taleb, uh, Nassim okay. Nicholas Taleb, who wrote the Black Swan Theory. Yeah. And uh, so he's written a book recently. So it's usually a bunch of books uh, at the same time. Um, and then 
uh, you know, you end up taking notes and reflect on where we end up across. So that's usually how I read. There is a um, book called The uh, Use and Misuse of Children. And it's written by a um, author called uh, Mokokoma Mokohuana. And it's a very, very, it's just a bunch of his um, sayings about life. And they're quite, quite interesting. So once in a while, I pepper the reading with a few pages of this as well. So it's, uh, to answer your question, it's across the board. It's, it's not uh, one book at a time. It's usually two, three books at the same time. Interesting. I find that a lot of these um, philosophical principles often, you know, they hold very, very true, even sort of one, two or more thousand years after they were, they were written. It's the, the sort of the nature of humans no, doesn't change that much. Absolutely. The, the funny thing is that you read um, somebody like Seneca and yeah. there's a book that he's written called The uh, Shortness of Life. And uh, the text of the book is says, life is long if you know how to use it. And it's maybe 100 pages. I've highlighted the entire book because everything <laughs> that he said, everything that he said is true to this day. So yeah. it tells me that life doesn't really change from a philosophical perspective. It's the surroundings that have obviously changed. But in, in principle, we all uh, want the same things. We all want to achieve the same amount of success we want all want families, we want fame, we want a few things that are common. It's how you go about it and how you reflect towards it and how you conduct yourself during these times that uh, defines for who you are. But in principle, they all are the same across. You know, What we want is a varied form of what the kings and people wanted thousands of years ago. So you're, you're absolutely yeah. right. The principles stay the same. Yeah. It's interesting. I think the um, the concept of tablet time back in the Romans might be slightly different to now. <laughs> when, when yeah, screen, screen time versus tablet time. That's right. <laughs> um, excellent. Um, so no, I, I guess obviously you're currently the the India country head of managing director of Experian. Um, perhaps you can you can give us a bit of a, a sort of a backstory and how how you got to to, to that role. Perhaps your last you know last couple of roles and and some of the interesting sort of things you've experienced across across that time. Sure, of course. Uh, yes, I am the India country head and managing director at Experian. Uh, I actually am a CFO by training, if you want to call it that. Uh, had CFO roles for a long time, and um, I was the India uh, CFO for a company called Texas Instruments, the semiconductor leader. Um, and then uh, I had an opportunity to join a uh, fintech startup, interestingly, uh, to help them fund and to get them to the next level. So the board of directors had invited me to join as the CFO. And after we did the fundraise, uh, the board requested that I take over as the CEO of the company. So uh, I had a, a role as a CEO for about four years before I joined Experian. Uh, my experience primarily has been, uh, like I said, on the finance side, but over the last four years, it's been around fintech, it's been around analytics, uh, it's been around mobility, and all those exciting things that are happening in India at a very, very fast pace. Uh, and broadly uh, had experience across M&A and strategy as well. 
while I uh, worked on the on my CFO assignment. So there's kind of a varied mix of experience before I came into the current role. Uh, so and I, and it's been exciting because experience itself is on the uh, cutting edge of a lot of these technologies and um, the world's largest information services company. Uh, we have a number of uh, leading technology innovations, both on the decisioning side and on the fintech side. Uh, yeah. So there's there's a lot going on there. So it, it kind of was a uh, nice attraction for both uh, for of us to come together. And it's been very enjoyable uh, in the last year, a little over a year that I've been there. Yeah, I, I, it sounds like you, you got into the... Um... The, the fintech scene a relatively sort of early point how, how nascent was the, the the fintech industry in 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 india when you joined uh you're absolutely right i joined at a time when um fintech was the buzzword in india very few people knew what it was but everybody wanted to be in it and everybody wanted to be invested in it uh, but it was very, very clear uh, that it was out to change the game for uh, pretty much anyone that would be part of that. And what it meant is it would have brought in uh, changes in just how we did payments, uh, changes in just how we did our entire transaction base, and the ecosystem itself was evolving. There was a lot of thought leadership that was going on. And uh, as a result, uh, there was a lot of action that was happening on the fintech side. Uh, and to me, it uh, was the right time to join in because the company that I was uh, joined called Mob Me Wireless, um, yeah. they were uh, driving the peer-to-peer -peer, uh, payment e equation. And just right. imagine five years ago uh, to have a payment sent from one person to another within three seconds uh, was groundbreaking. <laughs> Uh, it's yeah. still groundbreaking in many countries, but uh, it was groundbreaking and the fact that we had an amazing um, uh, UI UX to go with it uh, was was a big attraction. So we did get um, some large investors uh, to get on board, Sequoia Capital came on board and we were able to take advantage of, uh, advantage of our technology and the fact that we were offering this amazing uh, concept to people. Uh, but fintech has really, really evolved in India since then. I think it's one of the more mature uh, marketplaces uh, across the world. Yeah. And I think a lot of it is driven by the fact that the regulatory uh, support and the regulatory leadership has encouraged it, uh, has continued to uh, drive fintech entrepreneurs and fintech companies and even large companies like you know, Experian or Visa or MasterCard to think uh, differently uh, across what they mean as fintech and to take advantage of that. So I think that itself is a big flip uh, across India. Do, do you think the, the Indian regulator is, is, is Mark, you know, sort of industry leading in, in many ways because of that, are, you know, and what, what are they, what are they doing to encourage, encourage businesses to, you know, incorporate new fintech products or, you know, build new, new products and systems? What, what are they doing to, to really support the, uh, the ecosystem? I, I definitely do think uh, in India, uh, cutting edge and market leading. And to me, just from a thought, thought process, um, really, how do we have um, a 
the ability to set up maybe a sandbox to start off um, live testing of products uh, that can go in and that can be then evaluated for retail consumption, uh, fraud, wealth management, any of that. And yeah. using that as an opportunity to say, okay, here's a limited uh, version of what you can actually go and sell across. Here are the things that you can build and here are the things that you can uh, allow that allow customers to do. And here are the regular security aspects that you need to maintain. And I think that bar has continued to be pushed over the last four or five years. And by yeah. doing that, um, we've really got onto the uh, front end of a lot of uh, fintech. The other aspect is that the regulator themselves has been one of requesting and sharing ideas as opposed to saying, this is how, I, this is the only way to do it. They regularly invite uh, entrepreneurs, industry executives, and we, we go and present a fair bit as well uh, on what are the trends coming up? What are the things that we should look forward to? What are the security aspects that we need to be aware of? Because in just in the pandemic situation, I do believe that the um, uh, instance of digital fraud is, is definitely increasing. So that's a conversation that we are having now with regulators as well. But when the regulator is one of encouraging conversation and encouraging dialogue, I think the markets end up winning and the customers end up winning as a result. So I think that is really the fundamental uh, advantage of the regulatory aspect we've had in India. And and how are the how are the large financial services uh, institutions uh, responding to to the threat of fintech? You know, in in um in Southeast Asia, it's been interesting. I, I think we've got you know places you know obvious players like DBS, which have done a, a very good job of of front running some of some of this. And we do sort of see across the region um, that if a, you know a large bank is well positioned and thoughtful enough, it can you know get some market quicker than some of the the, the emergent fintech players. Um, and having that sort of brand behind them really helps them to engage the the public. How how are the banks reacting in in India? I think the overall reaction if you want to use the, that word is not one of uh, competition at all it's actually embracing it because uh, almost all financial institutions have come to realize that the fintech ecosystem offers a lot more uh, capabilities that can actually enhance the banking experience Banking, as we define it, is undergoing that transformation. And firstly, it uh, it drives what I call seamless interaction. Uh, it actually has a lot more. It, it encourages faster banking in that you can do a lot of things on the cloud now. You could have a lot more uh, personalized interactions uh, that can be done quicker. Uh, a simple example is that a chatbot could really answer the first set of questions. Uh, that you don't need to wait for a customer service rep to come in <laughs> to answer for you, right? And yeah. when we did this trend back at my old company, that's 75% of the questions are questions that can be answered through a chatbot. And that came out, out of these um, collaborations and uh, all these innovations that the fintechs put together. So I think the banking ecosystem or the BFSI ecosystem has responded in a manner of embracing it more than anything else. Yeah. They've continued to partner with them in many cases. They've actually invested in a number of fintechs. And in cases where the accretive nature is significant, 
they've actually acquired these fintechs as well. So I think it's it's an amazing concept because it, you have an ecosystem that's very tightly required to go through um, a lot of checks and balances. And then you have another ecosystem which has a little bit more freedom to go and experiment. And you can really have the best of both worlds. You still have your uh, risk framework that is clearly set in a banking uh, ecosystem. But then within those parameters, what are the things that you go and experiment that uh, you can drive through? I think so. I believe that the banking uh, ecosystem has really embraced the whole fintech uh, uh, revolution. And I, I, I would say this, almost every company is a fintech company right now. It's, it's not like it. It, it, you know, like we said a few years ago, every company is a technology company. So every company yeah. is in, in effect, if you're in the BFSI space, you are effectively a fintech company itself. What are some of the, the key themes that you see, um, that you see investment going into, or you see the companies taking a real interest in sort of presently? You know, I, I believe in most sort of markets, the um, COVID has had a bit of an acceleratory effect on a lot of fintech. <laughs> Online transaction volumes are up, the need for for sort of you know microfinance or sort of lending is 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 increased um well, you know is that the same in india and, and what are some of the the interesting themes you 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 see coming up so i actually have a number of uh, views on this and i think fundamentally the ecosystem has changed uh, to move from just payments um, to a lot of other things as well Firstly, the concept of payments itself has, has been totally revolutionized. Um, when the UPI uh, came in and universal payment interface came in, the payment, the quantum digital payments just took off significantly. Uh, UPI overtook uh, cards, both debit and credit, uh, in September 2019 and became the most preferred payment mode. Um, Google Pay is having an adoption that is staggering. It's in the hundreds of percentages. A number of states uh, have a significant amount of transactions across the the one industry that has the maximum uh, digital transaction, UPI transactions is F&B, food and beverage, okay. followed by yeah. financial services. Um, so UPI really has transformed the way we look at uh, payments itself. But then as we progress, like I said, we started with payments as a concept. Uh, the big change that has happened in the fintech ecosystem where what I call um, smart collaboration between uh, fintechs and uh, banks, really where the companies embrace the technology, they take it into their risk framework and then either invest in the company or take over the company itself. Uh, but in may, most cases, it's partnerships. It's taking to market joint products. It's taking to market uh, joint solutions that can meet the requirement of the customer while being fast, have the, have the benefit of having a large financial institution as well. So I think that is the real other trend that's picked up. Um, the, one, the one thing that is a little nascent, uh, in my mind at least, but I think would could take a larger piece of the pie is this concept called neo banking, yeah. um, which effectively 
as I understand it, is the has all the benefits of traditional banking, but then um, customized reporting, um, you know, failure identification is much easier. Uh, payouts is a lot, you know, you can schedule a lot of things much quicker. And um, really that is one where the new banks are partnering with a lot of institutions. There's been a lot of investment into that area over the last year as well. That uh, that is gaining a lot of traction as well. So in my mind, there are some four or five trends that are picking up, which could be game changers across the board. But in a sense, the, the fintech revolution has moved away from just payments to all permeating in that it's uh, going across all sectors of the economy, going across the entire life cycle of a customer. Uh, and, I, and, and I think that's fantastic because then people get used to a larger form of efficiency, larger form of uh, expectation on just how transactions happen and how life gets conducted as a result. So there's, there's quite a bit of excitement happening in India. Interesting. And do you see a, a, a scenario in which the traditional banks begin moving their uh, their operations to a much more sort of neo-banking model, um, you know, getting rid of, rid of a lot of their backend infrastructure, replacing it with much more, I guess, sort of scalable and, and manageable technology and uh, sort of cutting down on bricks and mortar? Or, or do you think that is going to be something where the challenges are going to come in and, uh, and really start taking over? No, I actually believe that the, that's the direction that they will have to go to in many cases. I'll give you an example. Um, uh, an Indian who lives in a village today is never going to go to a branch to open his account. He or she is almost going to have the entire process done on the mobile because that's how quickly and seamless that's happening. Eventually, the, the last mile of that joining is right now um, physically that you have to submit the documents to physically. But even that is being now, and I, and I think that's one of the opportunity that's coming out of the entire COVID uh, situation is that even the last mile is, is and will get automated. And I'll throw a statistic here. The India sourcing of credit is 65% physical. Compare that to 90 or 85% digital in the US. So we have a long way to go to make this journey uh, even more digital so banks will use this as an opportunity to really drive the digital experience significantly and to do that you don't really need a brick and mortar branch anymore so the investment in that infrastructure will continue to go um, uh, go the opposite direction having said that the investment in all digital aspects the digital journey the onboarding what we call the video uh, verification, the fraud checks, all of those get digital. And uh, it, it creates a completely new ecosystem. It goes back to the fintech conversation because there are fintechs that play that entire ecosystem. So the financial institutions have the opportunity to either partner with those uh, fintechs or to be able to drive or build that internally as well. So I do believe that the COVID pandemic is going to drive tectonic shifts in just how the concept of banking and the concept of uh, digital banking 
happens in India. I think it is going to be a game changer for us. So traditional yeah. banks, as a result, are taking advantage of this. The, the, the ones that are on the cutting edge of uh, technology have already initiated, um, you know, some of these documentation requirements that are online. So if you have a document ID, you can now scan it as part of that application. And there are companies that end up doing the check of whether that document is valid or not. So you don't really need to go and submit it to anybody at all anymore. And that's game changing because it, it changes the way, changes the speed of banking and changes the speed of transactions completely. So yeah. I do believe that shift is, is on its way, but it's going to get accelerated because of uh, the current situation. Uh, and it seems obviously consumer behavior will, or sort of consumers will follow the path of least, least resistance to the services that they want. Um, and as you say, like having a 65%, um, you know, physical interaction, or 65% of the market having a physical interaction to access credit, I think that's that's an incredibly large population of um, of people that you can move into a digital into a digital environment. Um, and I can imagine that the first person that does that well. Um, will will you know will perhaps perhaps start to really win in the market? Yeah, no, without a doubt, I think there are a lot of good companies who are playing the entire ecosystem, and I think that as they get better and better, the beneficiary is always the customer, and uh, mm. I do believe that you know even small percentage shifts, five ten percent shifts in the Indian ecosystem just talks about hundreds of thousands of customers really. And those are tectonic shifts for uh, for financial institutions. <laughs> Whereas in Singapore, that, that sort of numbers uh, talk about hundreds of people. Um, <laughs> just this. Um, uh, but Singapore right. is, the, is at the forefront of a lot of fintech. And I would say, if anything, they would be market leaders uh, in just how the regulator has driven a lot of good work uh, the regulator is actually thinking so far ahead. So the yeah. scale may not be the same, but really in terms of just adoption and in terms of just how they thought through this, it's just mind-blowing. Yeah, and if you look at the, the inbound investment into the region, I think it's, you know, the lion's share is going to going to Singapore with, with Indonesia, you know, pretty close, pretty close behind. Um, great. Now, can you tell me a little bit about what services Experian provide and how we Experian works in in this market. Um, I know obviously you guys are well known as being a um, sort of credit credit services business, um, but I know there's a lot more to it than that. Um, how, how does how does Experian interact with the market? Sure, this is um, this is you know this is a larger play in India, in a sense uh, across the ecosystem. So. I'll step back and give you a view of how Experian views the country and the opportunity. Uh, the overall view in India is to drive uh, the concept of financial inclusion. And what I mean by that is when we have financial inclusion, it means that everyone has access to credit, everyone has equal access to financial products, they have access to financial products like insurance, uh, sure. They all have access to financial capabilities that then improve the overall ecosystem from a quality of living purpose, quality of just life and all of that. We believe that by contributing to the overall financial inclusion costs, 
that we end up uh, driving a significant amount of credit growth, which we are happy to participate in across the board. The benefit that Experian has is that it has an ecosystem of products which helps the life cycle of the customer. Firstly, from being uh, starting to get on a bank account and then all the way to availing credit, all the way to availing structured products, all the way to availing personalized wealth management, all of those as well. So as becoming an ecosystem player, we have the opportunity to provide products and solutions across the board. Uh, the primary role of Experian is obviously the credit bureau. So we one of the few credit bureaus in India and uh, we have um, a significant number of people on the bureau who we provide data for and credit reports for. The ancillary, or I would say the ones that have the ability to drive experience growth even more in India or the suite of solutions that we have on top of that. In, in India, experience is known as the analytics bureau. So our analytics capabilities are actually uh, fairly strong. We bring a lot of analytics in play uh, to our customers, which helps them to segment customers, create customized scorecards, create solutions that are able to help with what we call aspects like income estimation, propensity modeling, um, all of those, which then help a lender work with multiple models to be able to drive better credit decisions and to be able to give you know uh, increased credit or uh, increased uh, capabilities a uh, simple example is uh, an insurance provider which uses a models to determine uh, could satya have a higher uh, life insurance cover based on his age based on his income all of those which that model helps to throw out some of these aspects yeah. the, the, the other aspect which and I, the other aspect with which experience is the market leader is in our fraud and id products so we have a solution called hunter which actually is the is the market leader uh, and has been for a while and what it does is it helps financial institutions identify and prevent fraud even before it happens so we have a um, closed user group that helps to drive uh, uh, decisions on customer requests for uh, lending, kind of customer requests for loans, that then get go uh, that can very verify to determine if they are fraudulent or not. So a fraud prevention rate is like in the ninety-five percent uh, range at this point of time, oh. and it's actually That's continuing fine. to grow, right? So we have a bureau yeah. products, we have a fraud on ID, we have our analytics, and I was going to. Add our decisioning, but I'll I'll take your question before I, I get to this. Yeah, no, because I've I've got sort of questions on both the credit scoring bit and the and the fraud. So uh, let's let's start with the the credit scoring stuff first. Well, I um I was at a, a conference in Singapore a couple of years back, and there was somebody uh, giving a, a talk about um the uh, a sort of a fairly novel approach to credit scoring for small businesses I think in the Philippines and it was um, if uh, if like a mum and pop shop was looking to get uh, a, um, 
a, a sort of a small loan to help grow the business, one of the things that they would submit is a photograph of the front of their store. Um, and if they have a Coca-Cola machine in there, um, that means that Coca-Cola trusts them with a with a, with a fridge, uh, which means that they must be <laughs> relatively uh, sort of um, trustworthy. Which means we can probably trust them with 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 you know with some money, or or at least it sort of feeds into the alg algorithm. Um, how 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 much do do you guys bring in um, you know alternative uh, data for credit decisioning or you know credit scoring and perhaps that's more on the decisioning side but I'm really keen to sort of dig into that that I guess that logic layer and that, that algorithm underneath T tell us a bit about about that uh, sure so um, that's an interesting analogy uh, especially <laughs> when it comes to consumer uh, credit uh, lender. Uh, today uses the credit score as the first step of decision. But the decision to lend actually depends on a number of other factors. So it actually depends on data that they would get around uh, the person's financial behavior, the person's uh, digital footprint, and other modelings that they can do. A classic example is that the lender is able to determine financial performance based on how this person has paid cards before, how many loans has he or she taken before. So that forms one aspect. Second is that the concept of alternate data that you've talked about, which I'm a very big believer in, the alternate data concept allows um, a lender to add two, three more variables to determine performance and behaviors. There's uh, lenders who look at social behavior as well to make these decisions. And that then helps to form a more rounded view of the customer. And then based on that, you are able to, you know, park them in a certain quadrant or in a certain section to say, okay, this person is young, has the potential to have more income over the next few years, but based on his behavior, he seems like a fairly high risk. So our expectation of how much we want to give a loan to is reduced by that amount. So alternate data is a significant play and it will continue to be a significant uh, play uh, in India and in, in my mind across the world in terms of credit decisioning. Uh, we actually invested in an alternate data uh, player, uh, digital uh, DMP, uh, in October of 2019 called WeServe. It helps us tap into telco data of uh, about 300, 400 million customers. And we are able to use that uh, to drive alternate data decisions and also use that for effective lead generation and targeting purposes as well. So I'm a big believer that alternate data is, is, a, is almost a requirement at this point of time for credit decisioning. Yeah. Uh, and just actually, while we're on that, on the, the telco data side, what sort of information are you using? Is it, sort of, you know, location data or just, just yeah, what, what, what are you guys yeah, looking so at? It will be a combination of few things. It will be uh, location data, spend, um, and then, um, you know, you also see transaction level, uh, not the actual calls that we make because that's security protected. But transaction, yeah. meaning that how often has this person changed the number, how many numbers does he have, all of those, which then gives a view that, you know, is this uh, a person that we really want to have a deeper dive in terms of a credit view uh, yeah. before we, we are able to uh, provide a certain amount of credit or enhance credit or add a financial product for that matter. 
Okay. It's just I had another interesting anecdote of um, uh, from a from a data scientist actually that they said that one of the small parts of their lending al algorithm was looking at how how charged the mobile phone battery was, um, implying that somebody who has a a, a, a mobile phone battery which is charged sort of more fully more often is ever so slightly more responsible uh, than somebody who has, whose battery is always running out. Um, <laughs> I'm not sure how true that is, but it's, uh, it's, that, it's that's, kind of that's interesting. But the, the, the interesting thing is that when we end up talking to lenders, and this is, this is a nice segue into our decisioning business, uh, uh, but we have a very large decisioning business as well in India where the lenders really want to use our decisioning products to build models and to build these capabilities that then allows them to create uh, environments where they can run all these simulations. So you can create these simulations and run all of them. And what that does as a result for them is to throw out uh, SAM uh, as a slightly different profile, an enhanced profile, or Satya in an enhanced profile then says really how can i use this as an opportunity to segment customers what it also allows them to do is to evaluate the quality of the loan portfolio so we can say that you know 60 percent of the folks who fall into this segment actually have continued increase in credit but 30 percent of the ones in the other segment have seen uh, potential delays in payments and you can use that to route your second set of decisioning so it's kind of a learning model continued learning model that that, continues, yeah. that uh, drives decisioning and i guess um that's an interesting insight to be drawn because if you can if you can predict and mitigate for people um perhaps being late for payments then it's it's not so much of a problem because you you're expecting it and you can you can factor it in and in the in the current scenario that is huge because that is all they're doing the what they want to do is there is a term called propensity of default so we really want to know who will default and what is the propensity of them defaulting and the payment terms and the payment frequency and all of those start adding and in most cases they end up becoming true so the we have a collection um portfolio which helps with that and then what the banks or the institution will do is they will quickly call sam or satya two months before say hey listen are you okay do you need any support you can pay five days late it's fine but don't default on the payment so yeah. those are the things that people look at so you're spot on in terms of your assessment on the fraud products how how does obviously a 95 percent rate of was it sort of prevention um is that based around consumer behavior and if a, if a behavior falls outside of a, a set of norms then it's flagged as as being um sort of Correct. you know potentially problematic or is it is it a bit more complicated than that the simple analogy is exactly that uh, yeah. but then we can add additional analytics on top of that to say this could be a potential fraudster as well. A uh, classic example is since we have a closed user group of contributing institutions, uh, if you are an institution that has contributed data and you have a, uh, a loan applicant today, and what it throws out is that Satya Kalyana Sundaram has applied for a, a loan at another bank as Satya K. 
or S Kalyana Sundaram. And what they try to do is there's about there's multiple variables where they try to see if there is a match. So if there is a match with the address, with the PIN code, with the phone number, with the date of birth, so all of these variables, if there are more than one or two matches, then it gets flagged saying, hey, Satya has applied for a loan three times in the last six months with three other institutions in different names and forms. So is that something that you want to check? The second yeah. is that you can add analytics on top of that and say here are potential uh, uh, fraudsters that we are not suggesting that they're all, but please take a look at your databases to see if you see defaults from any of them. So again, the data gets contributed regularly, it gets enriched regularly, and it becomes more and more powerful in terms of what it can offer. Um, and uh, it, it really helps institutions prevent a lot of uh, incorrect lending uh, as a result. Obviously, we've talked a lot about um, particularly lending and financial institutions. Can is this applied to other areas of business? Um, are there other businesses that come to you for similar, uh, you know, similar services for slightly different reasons? We've got interest uh, from a variety of other uh, verticals, as we call it. Um, in the U.S., we have a very large health vertical. Um, in the U.S., we also have a very large auto vertical. We do believe that those are opportunities that we can go after in India, uh, but I think they are pretty nascent at this point of time. Uh, I do believe that retail has a significant opportunity specifically for uh, potentially our lead generation and our targeting businesses uh, that we can go after. Uh, so we are evaluating other verticals as well outside of just the basics of banking, financial services, fintech, uh, etc. So uh, I do expect that over the next three, four, five years that we will branch, uh, we will add additional verticals. We've added insurance as a vertical last year because I believe that's a huge opportunity. But again, it's technically within the BFSI space. Uh, but I do believe that we will add verticals that are outside of the BFSI space in the next three, four, five years. Okay. And are you seeing much demand for um, the uh, particularly the decisioning aspects of your product suite from from startups, um, fintech specifically fintech startups, people that are going into you know peer-to-peer uh, -peer lending or microfinance or or some other some other aspects. Are they are they typically trying to build their own um, set of decisioning algorithms, or are they are they are they looking to 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 bring bring in or bolster their own with 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 products like yours? That's a that's a very good question. So the fintechs uh, usually work with us on our consumer businesses, and our consumer businesses uh, contribute and work with a number of fintechs because as the fintechs effectively are a B two C, so yeah. when they really want to go after consumers, they want to as much information on them. So we have a uh, security structured mechanism where they can have consumer information um, and they end up partnering with us. So we have a partnership with almost all the top fintechs in India as a result. Sure. To top that, uh, many of them want to work with us on their decisioning because they want to build models, they want to build uh, yeah. capabilities. 
a lot of the fintechs are actually very good at building their own model but eventually mm-hmm. what happens is when they want the high end decisioning and they want to invest in the high end capabilities around all propensity all of those things then they usually end up turning to a decision provider like us um and both on our decisioning side and or and on our analytics side so we have startups that work with us extensively on our analytics portfolio uh we have startups that work with us uh, extensively on our decisioning portfolio as well and do you uh, i i know that obviously you have the 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 ventures arm of the experian business um uh, t- tell us a little bit about about that and and you know where where you guys are looking to 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 play in the market with the with the ventures arm sure um we do experian ventures is obviously highly active and uh, you probably have that they've made investments across the globe over the last 3 4 years uh i would say in the current uh, ecosystem um, we are a little bit more guarded in terms of investing because right now our view is that investments could be done more effectively into our own businesses to scale up the growth but as a concept uh, ventures has been very effective we've had the opportunity to partner with uh, exciting fintechs um, and with exciting companies and we use that uh, uh, capability uh, as a strategic investor so we're not really a financial investor who is coming in to invest a few dollars and then uh, drive a return in 4 5 years what we want to do is be, be very careful about identifying the right um, right partner and once we do we actually want to help them with their strategy we want to help them grow their overall uh, ethos and add to that the experience capabilities that can drive that vision even further uh, in a sense the real work that happens is in the evaluation stage so at this point of time i believe we talk into anywhere from 10 to i would say 15 to 20 uh, partners or potential partners but then the real de- discussion is around what the strategic fit and where we can work together to drive uh, you know advanced analytics or whether it's decisioning or whether we can drive a better consumer experience and use that in turn with the experian ecosystem to offer a more solidified uh, solution or a product from our side so there is a significant amount of work that happens there uh, but we always want to get in as a strategic investor and help them grow their uh, vision as opposed to a in and out uh, uh, situation where we want yeah. to invest yeah. for a period of time more, more of and, a vc approach uh, but yeah. yeah so correct exactly uh, but what we also do is uh, given that we've had great conversations and we continue to have great conversations with the entire vc community uh, which have led us to a lot of great companies as well so i think it's a question of having a lot of um, opportunities to invest but being very selective in terms of who and what we will invest in it the, the key parameters would obviously be around the technology uh, and the fit onto the the strategic fit with the experience but one of the biggest things that i look for since i came from that ecosystem is the 
quality of founders, the quality of the investing, uh, the other investors and all of those as well that we take uh, a lot of regard for uh, before we want to get into a partnership. And how do you um, how do you manage conflicts of interest in in within the within the um, the Experian portfolio? Because um, obviously you can imagine that, that there's a if your your clients are from a, a particular pool of, of fintechs and and then you 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 favour one, how, how, and how how does that how does that work? No, I've, we've generally not had uh, to deal with that in a big way. Um, in a sense, we end up catering to various segments. And when it comes to decisioning or when it comes to the end decision on, on how to partner or how to drive through, uh, those, those end up working themselves out. I've not had a situation where there has been a, a significant conflict of interest that we've not had a, a solution to at this point. Thank you very much for that. That was, that was absolutely fascinating deep dive onto to fintech there now uh, well perhaps we can talk a little bit about leadership um i, I obviously you run a, a large organization perhaps you can you can talk us through just the structure of that organization and then you know some of the challenges of running an organization of that size and, and perhaps talk us through a few of your key principles for for leading an organization like this uh, sure so uh, i would this this is very, not very different from a regular uh, leadership CEO role. Uh, I have a strong leadership team uh, that I've actually, we've actually ended up building over the last uh, six to eight months, and uh, which helps me drive the, the vision of what we want to do in India. The vision for India really comes from the global vision and the APAC vision that we have. And uh, clearly, we want to be able to be about four or five times the current size in about the next five years. So it's very, very aggressive. Um, just from an operational uh, perspective, uh, we've created systems and structures in place that allow the next level leaders and the next level leaders to take uh, and drive operating decisions. You have enough compliance and enough governance aspects in place, which is pretty much our primary focus to ensure that all our risk thresholds or all our infosec uh, information security thresholds and all, all other financial parameters are met at all points of time. And as these decisions cascade, they come up to my leadership team or to me to take, uh, take calls and to, to drive decisions. The real opportunity and, in a sense, the challenge is uh, to be able to get a team of committed, excited, and motivated folks to believe in the vision and to be able to drive the growth. And I think we are on our way to doing just that, um, because if we have a singular focus towards vision, and if you have singular focus towards the things that need to get done as a result, your execution mindset is just that much more uh, focused and it's that much more surgical. And my, the, a lot of the time that I spend with is to ensure that everyone is aligned towards the vision and everyone aligns towards the broad principles that we want to drive towards. And when I talk about financial inclusion, when I talked about uh, our overall ethos of driving ecosystem growth, that's really how um, we will drive 
growth in India. What that means is that if you go to a customer who's talking about a decisioning solution, um, it's almost imperative that we not just talk about that particular product, but have a conversation with that for the customer about their vision and see how all and where all we can start assisting them. And these end up having what I call integrated conversations that end up driving a lot of value. So that mindset shift is something that uh, that is some uh, something that I drive. Uh, yeah. I would believe that from a leadership capability, I'm a, you know, I would say distributive leadership is, is in a sense where you have you trust your leaders to take the right decisions. You have uh, frameworks that are in place to allow them to work within those frameworks. But then you allow them to go and take decisions that can improve the speed of decisioning and also take the uh, right metrics as leader. Um, you know, it's important that we set the ethos correctly, the compliance correctly, and also the vision correctly, so that while they're executing, they believe they are all doing the same thing in the right manner and in the right uh, focus. Uh, that's, that's generally how I operate. Okay. And when you're assessing potential leaders to come and join your business, are there or perhaps it'd be better if I say, what are the specific things you're looking for in, in those in those people? It's a set of factors. Uh, the first one, without a doubt, that I look for is uh, a sense of integrity and a sense of uh, a purpose around themselves. I think that uh, those with a sense of purpose around themselves usually have and carry themselves a little differently than most others. They, uh, they believe that they are on uh, the role or they are in the ecosystem in general for a purpose that's much larger. So they want to be, they look forward to that and they prepare and are focused to that. Uh, over a period of time, I've learned to, uh, and you, you interview a lot more people than I do, you can get a sense of that if you know what I mean, that somebody with a sense of purpose and uh, at a level of integrity just comes across completely differently during a, an interview. So that's something that I look for first. The, the second is you have to have somebody as a leader who's got a significant execution mindset in that, you know, we can all talk the talk, but the real proof of the pudding is in, in execution and, uh, you know, consistency of execution, consistency of performance, and consistency of great results. And ideally, I'd like to work with people who have shown sustained periods of growth as opposed to achieving 75% growth one year and then 12% growth the next year or, de or you know, in a sense, growing, degrowing the next year. So how have you improved performance consistently over a period of time? And that's a regular question that I ask people and what, yeah things that they've done. So when you build a sustainable organization that grows every year in market share and in profitability, it starts building the foundation and the bricks and mortar of that. So I look for that. And the third, if I'm hiring for leaders, uh, you know, I have a rule that everybody who reports to me and two levels below uh, have to have an interview with me as the final interview because I want to make sure that the leadership pipeline three levels deep has the same yeah. value systems that I'm looking for. 
the third real thing is around and these are not in any order right uh, the third yeah. is around a sense of people a sense of empathy a sense of collaborative uh, culture you know embracing differences to be able to work with uh, different people most people who've gotten to a role by being very execution focused but are not people managers you will see them failing um, in large multinational organizations because you require a mindset to work uh, with multiple stakeholders and in organizations like experian you have these stakeholders all over the globe and all over the region yeah. so you have to have that uh, mindset and you have to be able to imbibe that mindset to be able to work with everyone and you know and in many organizations there's matrix reporting you know this very well so um, you know what if they have a functional boss and a uh, you know a, an administrative boss how do they work with them how do they ensure that collaboration so those are things that we look forward and we spend a lot of time to the last thing that i do is uh, i do a fair bit of uh, experimentation where i tend to ask them questions that are a little out of the box and this is again comes from reading how some others have done it and we don't we're not really looking at the answer uh, and i'm sure you do a fair bit of these interviews as well it's about how they yeah. think through this it's about their ability to think on the fly uh yeah. what if they're hit with the situation are they able to respond or if the question hits them in a manner that they have you know they don't know what hit them then you know uh that it's a little difficult as well but no i was gonna say it's interesting is um uh, you know it's the, the old question like how many ferraris are there in in italy or how many five cent pieces yeah. can you fit in the empire state building it's it's you know a lot of these questions are geared more towards um watching how somebody breaks down and, and approaches a, a problem in an area that they're completely unfamiliar with um and um, yeah, it's it's it's. It, I think that 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 process is a uh, is is a is a daunting one for anybody in interview. Um, but it's a uh, it's it's always a fascinating topic on seeing how people react and how and especially I think you see um, people who have been so strong in other aspects of of the interview process fall down at that point. It's like, okay, how much of this was preparation? How much of 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 the of, the, of this person is able to to move off script? Uh, perhaps. Yeah, and you know, the other interesting thing that comes out is, you know, I've asked this question a couple of times. What if you know something is right, but I completely disagree with you as your manager, as the CEO of India, I completely disagree with you, but you know in your mind that that's the only and right way to do. How would you go about it? And people just say, well, it's there. I actually had uh, people say, well, it's eventually your decision. And uh, you know that's that's one that's one answer, but that's yeah. not the answer that we're looking for, right? It's about uh, if you believe something is right for the company and your manager disagrees completely with you, how do you go about it? And uh, yeah. it, it throws out interesting answers. Excellent. Well, that that takes us nicely on to to the final section of the show, um, which is the quick fire question round. So we have. Uh, an ever-growing list of questions um, that, that are added to this. Uh, probably need to do some curating of these in, in, in time. But so I'll ask you a bunch of questions, and I'd like your your quick-fire answers. Okay, ready? Okay, all right. Okay, excellent. What is the best advice that you have been given? 
always believe in yourself. Yeah, so um, the power of belief and the power of believing that you can actually go achieve what you want is very, 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 um, it, it, it's not as well subscribed to as, as we should. Many folks who've done unbelievable things have started with the fundamental thought that they can actually go and do it. So when we look at a career or life or anything else that we want to go after, the first step is to say, this is what I want and this is what I can go after and this is what I would like to get. And I believe I can go get it. So the power of belief is significant. And uh, I thankfully had a mentor or two who said, well, I, I do think that you can do this. I do think that you can become this or that. And uh, I use that uh, very, very uh, selfishly, obviously. But I do believe that it starts that the first thing towards success is always to believe in your capabilities. And it's, it's possibly the best advice I've ever got. What is your favorite terrible management slogan? For example, and this is my favorite, <laughs> when, when the tide goes out, you can see who's been swimming naked. <laughs> Uh, there's just so many. Um, <laughs> the, the one that I used to hear from one of my ex-managers is, don't bring me problems, bring me solutions. And, you know, I, I just thought that was, you know, in a sense, crazy, because the reason why I'm coming to you with the problem or what I believe is the problem is because it's a little about what I'm able to comprehend. And I'm hoping to have this person come back to me with uh, some level of guidance in terms of what to go and which direction to think through. There are cases where people actually do not know how to proceed and they can come to us with a problem and say, listen, I'm thinking this, I don't know what to do, can you guide me? And when you dismiss that by saying, don't bring me problems, bring me solutions, in a sense, you're confusing the person even more. Uh, uh, so I, I've, I've had that I've heard that enough times to say I will not use it. Yeah, yeah, okay, so. okay. Um, okay, tell me something that's true that almost nobody agrees with you on. Um, well, I have a couple of theories, but I'll tell you one. <laughs> I actually believe that world poverty can be completely eliminated through technology. Oh. We could have zero okay. poverty in the world. It's a powerful statement. Do, do, do you have any uh, sort of a high-level three-point action plan on how that might be um, <laughs> executed? Um, I have, I always believe, as drab as it sounds, the fundamental change that can be driven by uh, the largest fundamental change is always policy change. When yeah. an institution says, listen, we will abolish slavery or we will abolish this or this is what happen. You're creating a cultural or a tectonic shift in how this happens. So there are decisions that governments and people can take that will fundamentally alter these changes immediately. So, but there are a number of vested interests and other things that happen as well. But I do believe that that policy decision and technology, we don't even need the third one, will can eradicate poverty as we see it. And it can happen in our lifetime. It doesn't need a hundred years. It can happen within 30 or 40 years. Look at the look at the change that's happening on climate. That 
people are now taking this consolidated effort to say we want to reduce emissions, we want yeah. to reduce carbon footprint, we want to reduce plastic. And those started as ideas, but then really it becomes a culture when it becomes a policy. You cannot do these things. So tomorrow you can only you cannot buy single-use plastic, something like that. As when it becomes policy, it becomes that much more powerful. So I do believe that between policy and technology, we can eradicate poverty. Fantastic. And it makes my um, next question sound incredibly flippant because uh, we're moving into a more lighthearted part of the, uh, the questioning. Um, what is your favorite restaurant? I really need to change the, the order of these questions. <laughs> I haven't got a flow, don't I? Um, <laughs> well, uh, the, the key to a good life is to enjoy all things, right? It's not just to say, <laughs> oh, I will only speak philosophy or I will not do this. It's to have a taste of everything, but then have a focus towards what interests you. A favorite restaurant in um, in India or Singapore or? Um, do, do one of each, why not? Uh, the one in Singapore used to be called Kudeta. I think it's called Selavi, right now? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so that was uh, something that I liked. Um, nice. In India, there is a uh, restaurant called uh, Dum Pukt, which is a version of Indian biryani that they serve from the Mughal time. And the, yeah. the rice is cooked over a two, three hour period. So the spices and all of that are uh, ingrained into it. And I'm, I'm not a big eater. and you know, I usually wait a little bit of time before I go into a restaurant like that because it's just so, it's just so aromatic, it's just yeah. so filling and it's so juicy and it's got all the flavors in there. Um, that's, that's one and uh, that's one that I really, really like. That sounds, sounds delightful. I will put it on the, on the list. Um, I will. And um, you should. <laughs> Excellent. Um, uh, where, where is the first place you will visit post COVID? It's a, you know, interesting answer, but parents, so Chennai, yeah. I want to go yeah. okay. um, make sure they are well, I, I do video with them twice, twice a week, but I, nothing like going and seeing them and saying, okay, glad yeah. to see that you are looking as good as you did on, on video. <laughs> on video, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, what's your most obscure hobby? Uh, I don't know if it's obscure. Uh, but cooking is something yeah. that I enjoy and I don't do it as often as I like. I used to cook a lot when I lived in the US uh, only because I didn't have the money to go buy food outside for the first few years. But uh, I like cooking. I like experimenting a little bit. Uh, so that that would, I don't know if that qualifies as an obscure hobby, but it's, it is one. Yeah, no, I thought I thought we were going to hear about the Harley Davidson at that point, but no, it's not a hobby, right? That's more passion. It's not a hobby <laughs> at enough. all. Right, yeah. right now, I'm only driving the, the Harley Davidson in the basement because of all the COVID situation. But uh, I I do believe that you know, something like wind in you know the wind in your ears is just a completely different feeling, and I wouldn't call it a hobby at all. It's something yeah. that I really really want to do. Uh, there is a pan-India drive that I've been planning. So wow. uh, yeah. the, the, 
the statement that I say uh, is, I'm not going to ride the bike. The bike takes me to wherever it wants to. Yeah, okay. We turn left, we turn left, uh, we turn right. Pan India could be either a relatively short trip if you're right in the south. Or uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, have you have you decided how far north you're going to go before you do the? Uh, uh, <laughs> no, it, I actually think that it. And uh, for those who have bikes. You see a road and you say, okay, really, I want to take that road. And that could take you in whichever direction. And oh, I've amazing. said, I want to do this for a week and see where I land. I could have gone maybe 2,000 kilometers or I could have gone 500 kilometers. But you're going around in circles too. But uh, I still want to go try this. Uh, and solo, obviously, just to yeah. me and the mic. And the last question. Um, and this this can be the answer can be anything doesn't have to be um, sort of specific to to India or fintech or any any of these things. But what part of the future are you most excited by? Uh, well, I see I see my children and I see how they visualize the world. And I know you have two daughters. They are most excited about arts and music and you know getting being with people and having that a life that is not driven by a certain amount of materialistic thought processes yeah. and they're at an age where they're i'm asking them what do you want to do and one wants to be a musician and the other one wants to be an actor um, so clearly no one's coming in the direction of of the corporate <laughs> world <laughs> but it's it's amazing to see the lives through their eyes at the time that they are because they, they have a completely different view of how life is. But on, on, a, on a completely different note, I do believe the, the one that excites me a lot, uh, which again, when I speak about technologies, I think the concept of drone technology is really going to change many, many industries. Uh, take farming, for example, where drones are populated yeah. farms. Um, and I think I think that's something that could change the world in many ways. Uh, that's a belief, and it could be an early, early belief. But again, two completely polar opposite answers: to music yeah. and then drone technology. So uh, yeah. that, uh, that's 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 what excites me. I think uh, technology, as we see it, is undergoing even more of a change. Um, yeah. But I do get excited by how the children and how they view life and what they want to see out of it. And, uh, and that brings us to the end of the podcast. Um, Satya, it's been an absolute pleasure. I think we've really run over time. So uh, thanks for, for just a fascinating insight into, in, into to everything, really. It was really, really, really good conversation. Thank you very much. Thank you, Sam. It's, uh, thank you for the opportunity. It's always a pleasure speaking with you. It's always open-ended. Uh, it's light. It's, it's serious, but it's light, and, and I love love these conversations. So thank you for the opportunity, and uh, looking forward to catching up with you again. Thank you. You too. Thanks again for listening to this episode of Southeast Asia's Growth Leaders with me, Sam Randall. In the next episode, we welcome Norman Sassono to the show. Norman is the CTO for Ant Financial-backed Indonesian fintech company, Dana.id. In this episode, we discover the fascinating world of Indonesia fintech and take a look at some of the technical challenges Norman and the team have had to overcome to take Dana to where they are today. I look forward to seeing you there. Stay safe and farewell. Mm -hmm.